Let me get my clock started. I'm going to jump in. I want to start with something that I felt like the Lord wanted me to remind us all about uh, as I was thinking about these prayer notes and this prayer booklet. Who was here for the NCMI conference last weekend? A few of us, right? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know I certainly did. It's always a great time for me to remember what's important. But for those of you that couldn't make it or couldn't come, the theme of the conference was, you know, following Jesus when we've never been this way before. That was the theme. That theme came from a word that the Lord laid on my heart in January before our prayer and fasting time. And it was a word that basically came from Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3 speaks of an event that happens in the nation of Israel's lives. It's a moment, it's a momentous event. The nation of Israel had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, lost without a, a clear direction because God was dealing with stuff in their hearts. And ultimately, they end up at this place in Joshua 3 when they're on the banks of the Jordan, about to cross over into their inheritance. And Joshua says something interesting to them. He says, you know, we're going into a direction and into a place we've never been before. We've heard about it. People have spoken about it. We know God's promised it to us, but we've actually physically never been there. And so what I need you to do, nation of Israel, he says, is consecrate yourselves. And I want you to do one specific thing. He says, look at the Ark of the Covenant and follow it across the river. In other words, where we're going is new, it's different, and it's going to require some different thinking, but what is going to keep us headed in the right, right direction is the presence of God. Follow God and you'll be okay. Follow God and you won't get lost. And so the word for us is the same as a church, and I'm reminding us of this because I'm, you know, in this past sort of week being confronted with this message. The fact is we as a church are headed into areas that we've never been before. Yes, we've experienced victory. Yes, we've had some breakthroughs. Yes, we've seen growth. But guess what? That's come with its fair share of challenges too. But the Lord is saying to us that we haven't even scratched the surface because what he has for us in this local church is more than we could ever hope for or dream of. And I truly believe that we haven't even reached the Jordan yet. I don't even think we've gotten there yet. I think we're still looking beyond the distance there and the Jordan is somewhere over there. And God's saying, just keep following me. Keep your eyes on me. And I want to say to you that even though God's got big things in store for us at church, it doesn't come easy. Sometimes we love to hear God's got more for us and it's got amazing things for us. Sometimes hearing God's got more for you should put fear into you. Because when God's got more for you, it means he's got more giants for you to face. On the other side of the Jordan wasn't like uh, Shangri-La. It was Canaan, giants, big things, the 12 spies. You know those guys, they were like petrified, 10 of the 12. And so there's times of testing, times of stretching, and I believe we're in one of those times as a church. And I want to encourage you because I'm encouraging myself at the same time. I know that I'm being tested. I know that I'm being stretched. But it's in these times of testing, it's in these times of stretching that God is building capacity in us. Steadfastness is one of my favorite words. It means perseverance, friends, tenacity, the ability to push through difficult times and to keep our eyes on Jesus. But we cannot do this if we take our eyes off him. The moment we make this thing about us, we're in trouble. And so my encouragement to all of us this morning, I don't, I don't even know why I'm saying all this, but my encouragement is that in seasons of growth, the only thing we can ever do is keep our eyes on Jesus when we've never been this way before. And so that's what I'm going to be doing, and I'm asking you to do that along with me. Amen? Okay, now we can preach. That was just a little taster. Sorry. <laughs> if you're a guest here this morning, I want you to feel welcome. We love having you here. Uh, I know we have a lot of church family out in spring break, uh, although it feels like winter break to me, but uh, spring break, and uh, so if you're watching online as well, welcome. Over the last nine weeks, we as a church have been working our way through a series in the book of Revelation. Two weeks ago, we ended off our first section by ending off the last of seven churches. So that's section one of eight, and we're going to get back to the book of Revelation. Don't worry. We're going right back there. However, as Tim said this morning, we are taking a short break as we prepare for Easter. And so in the weeks ahead, uh, we're going to be 
going through a series that covers the final week that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection. Some people will call this the Passion Week as well, and it's an exciting week. I say that because a lot of stuff actually happened in the last week of the life of Jesus. You might not know this, but let me give you some interesting information. Six out of 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. Mark, five chapters of 16. Luke, five chapters of 24, which means 16 out of 68 chapters in all the synoptic gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. That's one-fourth of all the synoptic gospels, a quarter of the entire account and narrative of Jesus' life is about the last week. John is an overachiever, and so what he does is he actually uses half of the book of John to speak about the last week of Jesus' life. Why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you this because a lot of what we know about Jesus, a lot of what we know about his teachings, is all wrapped up in this one week. And so we're going to go through that one week over the next seven weeks, in fact six weeks, we're going to do seven installments of it, and we're going to look at all the different facets of who Jesus is to us as our Savior, and it starts with today. Today we start with the Sunday before his resurrection, which is sometimes called Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to be looking at an event called the Triumphal Entry. Uh, and basically what we're going to see this morning is Jesus as a humble saver. So let's bow our heads and we're going to pray and we're going to go right into the text. Father God, we just thank you for the beautiful and amazing opportunities you've given us to be a part of your family. We never take it for granted. I never do, Lord. Thank you for dying for us on the cross, Jesus. This morning, Lord, I want to just declare that this whole time that we have together is about you, Jesus. It's not about a good idea. It's not about a great production. It's not about anything else but by lifting your name up on high. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would take full control of this meeting. Holy Spirit, move amongst us and let your name be made much of today. Pour out your spirit upon us. Reveal your glory to us and help us to grow in, our, in wisdom and in revelation of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at... 11 verses say of Matthew, we're going to jump around a little bit, we're going to go into the Old Testament as well, but all the text will be up on the screen, if you don't have your Bibles you can follow it here, if you do have your Bibles you can follow it in your Bibles. Verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. So as I said, this is seven days before Easter Sunday. Uh, it's chronologically happening now in this sort of way that we're going to be unpacking this series. But by this time, Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem for some time. In Luke chapter 9, Luke uses the words, he says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And what he's saying to us is not that Jesus is just headed to Jerusalem because he wants to go see the, see the sight and the sounds. He doesn't want to go there because he's never been there before. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem because he's got a specific mission and he's got a specific mandate. This is all the while that at this point in Jesus' life, he is well aware of the fact that everybody wants to kill him. When I say everybody, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, they were very unhappy with him. They wanted him dead. Yet Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you know this, but some of his disciples disagreed with that type of thinking, right? They didn't like the fact that Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem. In fact, they were always trying to avoid him going to Jerusalem because they didn't want him to die. And it's almost in this instance where Jesus wants to remind them just who he is. And so he does this by telling his disciples about something that was going to happen that nobody else but God could ever have known. He's declaring his divinity to his disciples by foretelling an event, by saying, listen, go get this donkey. It's going to be waiting for you, and a couple of things are going to happen when you get there, but don't worry, everything's going to be as it is. And Jesus, Jesus is reminding them that I'm going to Jerusalem for a reason. 
There's a purpose behind this trip. But Jesus is not the only one headed to Jerusalem at this point in time. Neither is it just his disciples, because everybody, in fact, that was Jewish, that lived in and around Jerusalem, and even lived in the regions of the world, were headed to Jerusalem too. And the reason they were going there is because five days from this particular day, they were about to celebrate what is arguably the most holiest of all Jewish holidays. And that is the day of Passover. Passover is a celebration of an event that happened thousands of years ago. How many of you know the Passover story? Right? We remember the nation of Israel is in Egypt. They're under bondage, in suffering. They're crying out to God for hundreds of years, saying they need redemption. And God eventually sends them a redeemer. His name is Moses. Moses is not Jesus, but he's a picture of Jesus. And we know all the story. There's the ten plagues. They get progressively worse. Pharaoh's heart gets hardened over and over again until we get the last plague, which is the angel of death. The firstborn in every household will die when the angel of death passes through the village and through the nation. But if you're a Jew and you take the, the blood of an unblemished lamb and paint it on your doorpost, then the angel of the Lord will pass over you. That's the day that these Jews were headed to Jerusalem to celebrate. But there's something interesting, because not only is it five days before Passover, but we know now because of perspective that it was five days before the crucifixion. And so not only are Jews going to celebrate Passover, but at the very same moment that they're celebrating Passover, Jesus would die on the cross, ultimately Meaning that while the Jews were headed to Jerusalem to celebrate an event, Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to fulfill the event. See, Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb, the lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. It all happens not coincidentally. It doesn't happen by accident. This is planned and purposed by God. He's trying to show the world in no uncertain terms that this is it. I have come, I have died, and all those who believe in me will be saved. There is no more price to pay, no more penalty to pay for your sins because my son will bear it all. Incidentally, the timing is also interesting because at the moment in time where Jesus is about to declare his messiahship in the most public way, the city of Jerusalem is fuller than it's ever been. Think about it. People would come from all over the nation to go and celebrate Passover. But not only just the nation, right? In fact, if you read a little bit later in the book of Acts and you get to Pentecost, you'll realize that people came from surrounding countries to celebrate Passover too. And so it's almost in this moment where not only is there significance in the Passover itself, but there is significance in the amount of people that are there that are going to go back to their homelands and tell people the story. We met a king who died on a cross, who was raised on the third day, and guess what? His name is Jesus Christ. God's plan is always perfect. Verse 4 says this, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Just think about that. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Just to be clear, that's not saying Jesus is riding the donkey and the colt at the same time. I mean, Jesus wasn't here to show his horsemanship. Okay, he's riding on the colt, just to be clear. I've got three questions for us this morning. The first question that will relate to who Jesus is to us is this. Considering the words, he is humble and he's riding on a donkey, we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of king is this? For real, what kind of king would come with a donkey and who is humble? And to answer that question, I want to take us back. I want to take us back to the original prophecy that concerned this. That comes from the book of Zechariah. 553 years before this event took place, Zechariah prophesied that this exact event would happen. But he fills in a little bit more information about the coming king. 
In Zechariah 9 verse 9, he says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Long before the triumphal entry, friends, and long before Zechariah even penned the words in his book, the promise of a coming king was well known to the nation of Israel. In fact, this promise of a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Savior, was known for hundreds of years. Genesis describes him as the one who breaks or bruises the head of the serpent. Samuel calls him the builder of the house of God. Daniel calls him the Messiah. Isaiah calls him Emmanuel, God with us, and our conquering king. And Jeremiah calls him the Lord of righteousness. And now in Zechariah 9, we get a little bit more information. Not only are we told how he will arrive, but we are given characteristics of the king that they should be looking for. And this is important. This was foretold. It's very clear, and I'll, you'll see why this is important later, but they were told what kind of king to expect. Zechariah again, in verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. Then he says this, Righteous, so this is a righteous king, and having salvation is he, another word of saying that is he is saved, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice that this Zechariah 9 verse 9 verse adds some things into it that we don't see in the book of Matthew. Those three things. He's righteous and he's having salvation. In other words, he is saved. Those are things that we can't see in the book of Matthew. And if we don't see it, we might miss it. What he's saying firstly is that this king is a righteous king. What does that mean? Well, to understand the context of the mind of the writer in the Old Testament, Zechariah in particular, you have to understand that at this point in time, when Zechariah is writing the prophecy, Israel has had its share of really terrible kings. I don't even think they knew what a truly righteous king was. Even King David, who was a man after God's own heart. I mean, he was a murderer and adulterer, right? He was a good king. Hezekiah, another great king. But guess what happens at the end of Hezekiah's life? He forgets about the nation and thinks about himself. He becomes self-centered. And then, of course, you get the really bad kings. Kings like Ahab, who were just uh, lunatics. And so this concept, this notion of a righteous king is unheard of. In fact, the kings of Israel had done a poor job, had done such a poor job of leading the nation that the nation divided into two. After Solomon, everything falls apart. You've got the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Judah, Israel. And then guess what happens? They go even, even further into rebellion because of their kings and they start to worship foreign gods. It's at that point that God has enough and he sends in conquering armies to come and defeat the nation. Assyria defeats Israel, takes them into captivity. Babylon defeats Judah and takes them into captivity. Zechariah is actually post all of that. In fact, at this point in time when Zechariah is writing, the Cyrus has sent the exiles back in to go build the temple. And it's at this point that he starts to tell the nation of Israel, forget about all the kings we've had before. Forget about their character. Forget about how they failed us. Because guess what? God is sending us a righteous king. A king who will not divide but unite if we let him. And so he's righteous. The second thing he says is that he is a saved king. Now to be honest, that's so confusing. Because it's strange, right? I mean, we know this prophecy is about Jesus. We've just read Jesus fulfilling the prophecy. So tell me something. Can Jesus be saved? I mean, he's the one that does the saving, right? We are saved by Jesus, by his blood. What does Jesus need to be saved from? He is almighty God. Well, here's the, here's the reality. Again, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. When Zechariah is writing this, he's thinking in his mind about all these kings that God had done great things with. Kings like David, 
You know, kings like Hezekiah, kings like Solomon, who at some point in their life were facing insurmountable odds, whether it was battling an army that was thousands of times bigger than it, or whether it was needing a miracle to cross an ocean. And God saved them in those circumstances. That's the, that's the way Zechariah is describing this. God saved those kings. And just like he saved those kings, God was going to save Jesus from an insurmountable odd. Now we can miss this if we think that Jesus' purpose in coming to this earth was to defeat the Romans or to defeat the Jews or that his greatest enemy was actually the cross. It's none of those things. Jesus' greatest enemy was none of that. It was death. Jesus had to face an enemy that the odds were stacked against him because nobody before Jesus had ever conquered de death and had been risen to glorified status. But God saved Jesus from death. And if Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, then we have to understand that when God saved Jesus from death, he saved us from death too. See, we need a savior who was saved himself from the very thing that each of us in this room will one day have to face. We have to trust that we can get through it, and we will, because Jesus is glorified today, seated at the right hand of the Father, no longer dead, but risen to eternal life. Colossians puts it this way in verse 15. It says he's the image of the invisible God, Emmanuel, God with us, not outside of us, not somewhere where we can't know him. He is with us. He's been here on this earth, historically proven. We know what he looks like. He's the firstborn of all creation. What creation is that? The old creation? No, he's the new creation. Jesus is the firstborn of the new heaven and the new earth. One day we will be with him. And by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. It goes on to say thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. Everything was created by him. All things were before, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. The very space between us, the space between the bones in our, uh, the atoms in our bones is held together by Jesus Christ. This world would spin out of control if Jesus wasn't in it. I mean, just think about that. Think about how this universe is maintained in perfect order all the time. That's because of Jesus. You take him out of that, man, these planets are going like a billion, like all over, bro, and us with it, all over the place. And he's the head of the body, the church. Not me, not you, not anybody else, not a good guy, not a great guy, not a prophet. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. There's the key. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus had to face his enemy. He was saved from the grip of death, and he opened the way for all of us to follow with him. And one day, we can know that we'll be glorified just like he was if we call him our king. The third thing that Zechariah says, and he sort of makes a point of this, and it's echoed in the Gospel of Matthew, is that he's a humble king. And that's the title of this morning's sermon. Here comes this righteous king, right? So we know he's righteous. He's all good. We know he's victorious, and he's beaten the greatest enemy arguably anyone, any one of us will ever have to face. That is death. However, instead of coming like all of the great kings of the age, and in Zechariah's mind, he's thinking of King Cyrus, who would have come with, man, legions of soldiers and chariots and probably even elephants. I mean, if you've ever watched the movie 300, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's how Cyrus arrived. He rolled in like that. Big throne, big people pulling throne, whipping people, thunderbolts and lightning. Very, very frightening. <laughs> 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 
I was going to see, like last week, a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, Philadelphia. Now I'm getting into Queen music. Eh? <laughs> but Jesus doesn't come like that. He doesn't arrive in any way, shape, or form like any other king would normally arrive. He comes seated on a donkey. Like from Shrek, donkey. <laughs> a beast of burden reserved for commoners, not for kings. And so as powerful as this king will be, Zechariah wants us to know that this king came to serve and not be served. When we gain prominence in the church or position or authority, we want everybody to serve us. That's not who we serve, friends. And if we're not like our master, then who are we following? I wonder if the reason he's writing a beast of burden is because he carried the burden of sin on his shoulders. Perhaps the horse couldn't hold him. He needed something that could take the weight of this. I mean, I'm going really far with this analogy here, but you understand what I'm saying. Both think, well, that's great. That's enough. That's all we need to hear. This is a good king. But Zechariah continues, and we don't see this in the Gospel of Matthew. Zechariah says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Not war, peace. He will, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus will rule everything. This coming king is going to behave in such a way that it's going to break the mold of anybody that you could ever think of being a king. Do you know that nations were controlled in those days? And you probably realize that nations are controlled in these days too. By the might of the war machine that the people can yield. Jesus comes to break down the war machine. The chariots will be gone. The war horse is over. The battle bow is gone. In other words, we don't need armies for this kingdom. We don't need might. What we need is peace. A king who will demonstrate what true might is. You know what true might is? It's the ability to conquer through peace, even though you have the ability to destroy through might. That might is when you can bring peace, even though you have the power to destroy. Jesus on the cross could have called down legions of agents, legions of angels to destroy us, to destroy his persecutors. Yet he chose to turn the other cheek. And so to answer our first question, we've been there for a while. What kind of king is this? He's a totally righteous, totally trustworthy, totally humble and peaceful king. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's great. But now here's the second question. Do you think that that's what the nation of Israel was expecting? Perhaps is that what we are expecting of Jesus? It's a good question, and it's critical. Because when we set unrealistic expectations on people, guess what happens? We have unmet expectations. And so if our realistic, unrealistic expectations are what we see Jesus to be, we are going to miss Jesus, friends. We're going to miss him in the moments in our lives. We're going to miss him as our Savior. And that's exactly what happened to this nation. Back to Matthew 21, verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Great, so everything works out. Jesus knows where the donkey is. He proves to be true, and right now, in their presence, he's fulfilling a prophecy that's 500 years old. Boom, just like that. Just incidentally, this is one of 300 prophecies that Jesus filled to the minutia. The statistical probability of him fulfilling seven prophecies are impossible. He nobody can do it. It's impossible. Statistically, it's impossible, which proves that he is God. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Picture this, there are people streaming into Jerusalem. There's people behind Jesus, there's people in front of Jesus, and somebody gets the brain, the brain like a moment where he's like, this guy's riding on a donkey, this guy Zechariah said all this was going to happen, this must be the Messiah. They say that because there's an expectation that he is the Savior. And so they start to say, yay, this is the son of David. That is a messianic statement. They recognize Jesus in that moment as the Messiah. And that's a good thing. You think that's great. They got it. Well, guess what? At this point in time in the nation of Israel, messianic fever was at an all-time high. They were looking for the Messiah behind every bush. Honestly, they were. They were like, man, we've got to find this guy. We need to get out of the trouble we're in. Why? Because they were tired of a corrupt government, corrupt politicians, an oppressive Roman rule. Does it sound familiar, friends? They were tired of the status quo. They needed a savior. But you know what they wanted? They wanted David. They wanted David to come riding in on a horse with a big battle bow and to destroy all the enemies. They wanted a politician that could overcome the Roman authorities. They wanted something in their own shape and their own form. And so, yes, they got it right. He is the Messiah. But guess what happened? Because of their expectations, they would soon start to realize or to think and to believe that Jesus actually wasn't the Messiah after all. We know this. Because if you continue to read the story, you'll figure that out. The same crowd that was shouting Hosanna in the highest is the same crowd that said crucify him. When we put expectations on Jesus, when we want him in our own shape, in our own form, friends, we will crucify him too. Verse 10, and when, they entered, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now they know who he is, but now they don't know who he is. And they said, okay, well, he's gone from Messiah to prophet. Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, here's the deal. Some had expected a warrior. Others a king. Some a solution to a political problem. When actually what they were getting, more important than all of those things, they were getting God and they missed it. I've missed it in my life before too. And that brings us to our most important question. John and Savannah, you guys can come up. And the question is this, who is Jesus to you today? Who is Jesus to us? Clearly how we see Jesus matters. Clearly, clearly how we expect him to show up matters. In the case of the Jews, we've just discovered that they wanted a certain type of Messiah. A Messiah that would fix things the way they wanted him to fix it. That would conform to the hopes and dreams that they had manufactured. And please don't get me wrong, those hopes and dreams were manufactured out of some really real and desperate circumstances. It wasn't like they were psychotic. I mean, they were suffering. They needed a savior. Just like the Jews in Egypt needed a redeemer to come and take them out of Egypt, these Jews needed something. And so it wasn't like they just imagined this all. They were going through hard times, but they let their difficulties, their reality cloud their judgment. If they just read Zechariah, perhaps they would have thought, well, this is exactly the kind of king we need. And perhaps there's some of us here this morning who are in the same boat. Maybe we see Jesus as the answer to a broken political system. Maybe we see Jesus as the one who will destroy all the people that have been standing against us, all our enemies, the people who reviled us, said bad things about us, who've judged us, who've been critical about us. Maybe he's the one that will bring restitution to us. Maybe we see Jesus as the answer to financial troubles or to a broken marriage. The genie in the lamp, proverbially speaking, that's going to fix our lives. 
Our perspective of Jesus matters. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Jesus cannot do any one of those things. He can do all of them. Let me tell you, he could be the greatest king. He would be the greatest ruler. He can fix any broken marriage. He can heal any sickness. But that's not who Jesus is. That's the outworking of what Jesus does. You see, Jesus is so much more than any one of those things. And this morning, he's calling us back to him saying, I am your king, I am your Lord, and I do things differently, more differently than you could ever imagine. When we remember that Jesus showed up not to conquer the Romans or to die on a cross, I mean, but to die on a cross, we will remember that what matters more than anything, not social, political, even pandemic-related problems. Let me tell you what matters. There is one problem that is so pressing that Jesus came to deal with, to, to deal with and that is the reality of dying in sin. That's the problem that he came to fix, is that we are a world that was eternally separated from God. No hope with no future. An eternal destiny in hell. And Jesus came to fix that. He came to say your sins are forgiven by my blood. And now you can enter into rest with me forevermore. That's what Jesus came to fix. The rest of the stuff is superfluous, friends. It's important. I get it. And it's real. And we're going through it. But there is a world out there who doesn't need another politician. They don't need, you know, a warrior. They don't need any of that. They need salvation. We need salvation. And we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. We don't need more soldiers. We don't need less soldiers. We don't need another president. We don't need more vaccines or less vaccines. What we need is Jesus because he's the only one that can bring the saving. And if we want to see the fullness of God work out what he wants to work out in this church, we don't need anything but Jesus. And it's not the Jesus that we fashion from our selfish expectations, from our desires or our needs, but the Jesus who he is. And so let me ask this again. Who is Jesus to you today? Is he a religious construct? Is he a good man? Maybe he's the prophet that everyone spoke about. Maybe for some of us, he's that cruel religious taskmaster that our grandparents and parents forced us to trust who lords over us with all of these checklists to see what we've done and how well we've done it or is he the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the first and the last is he our wonderful counselor our mighty God our everlasting father and the prince of peace and is he your friend I want you to bow your heads. I've been challenged by this message. Because I so quickly make Jesus into things I want him to be for me. It's a convenient Jesus. And so Lord, this morning I repent. I repent of my own selfish desires and my own expectations. And if there's anyone here this morning who wants to repent with me, can I ask you to raise your hands? Father, I pray for all of us here today. I pray that you would create in us a pure heart, Lord. That we would see you for who you are. Not who we want you to be, but who you are. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the capacity that we need 
to take this mission and this mandate that you've given us to see the gospel preached to every nation, every tribe, every tongue on this earth. Regardless of where people come from or where they're going, Lord, that we would preach this gospel and we would preach a true Savior, a peaceful King, a humble King, a righteous King, a King who overcame death, a King who wants to be your friend. Thank you, Lord, for all of us. If there's anyone here today that's never made Jesus your Savior, if you've never decided to follow Christ, this is the Jesus that He is. And I don't want you to believe that He's something other than that. But I would love to pray with you today. And so we're going to sing two songs now. Can I ask you that if you've never given your heart to the Lord, that you would be bold enough just to come and stand up here with me in the front. I want to pray with you one on one. If anybody else needs prayer for anything else, somebody to stand with you, maybe you need to just you know, confess some of the things that you've thought Jesus was to you or you've made him into, there will be a prayer team at the back. At the back of the venue, welcome to go there and they'll pray with you, they'll trust with you. Everything we pray for is in confidence. So let's worship our King together. Can I ask you to stand? Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we worship you today. In Jesus' name.